Good morning. The scripture reading is from Genesis 49, 5 through 7, Joshua 13, 14, and Joshua 21, 1 through 3. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Joshua 13, 14. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The author offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. Joshua 21, 1 through 3. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar, the priest, and to Joshua, the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh, in the land of Canaan, The Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people, got, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities, and pasture lands out of their inheritance. And this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, may we come with humble, open, excited, thankful hearts, ready to hear your word. Father, anything that I say that's not uh, according to your word may be taken from my spirit or may be taken from our hearts our ears, and only your word remain, Father, for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. We'll continue our journey through Joshua here for just a few more weeks, and then we'll, we'll wrap up, and by God's grace, uh, we're going to spend the summer working through the book of Proverbs. We'll probably be there for about seven or eight weeks uh, uh, through the summer, so I hope you're uh, looking forward to that. Uh, spend some time reading the book of Proverbs. Uh, we will not go verse by verse through the book of Proverbs, as that would we would be changing like topic every other three minutes. Um, if you've read the book of Proverbs, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but for the next few weeks, we'll finish up the book of Joshua. And here we come to chapter 21. Let me begin with this idea that everyone, every one of us looks back on our past at some time. Everyone does this at some time, some more than others, some maybe even many times a day. Have you ever looked back at your past? Maybe it was this past week, maybe it was three hours ago, or maybe 30 years ago. Recognizing the mistakes that you made and thought something along the lines of, how could God ever save me? What good could possibly come in my life now? I'm such a failure. That thing I did, or things, well, it's just nothing but consequences for me now. Or if it wasn't for that season in my life, everything would be so much better now. 
Again, this could be reflection on 30 years ago. It could be something that you just did 10 minutes ago. Or maybe you looked back at your past, and not so much from the, what's going on on the inside, but from the outside, hearing things and accusations and thought. Maybe it's true, or maybe some of it's true. Maybe I am what they say about me. How could anything good come of that? The, the reality is, some of us, if not all of us, are enslaved to some measure to the failures of our past. We just can't get past the past. And so we live with a, a ball and chain around our feet and around our neck, sometimes squeezing in tighter and sometimes less. The guilt, discouragement, depression at every corner, curled up in a little mental and emotional ball, afraid to do what we know God wants next. Slaves. No power in our steps. No courage for the next thing. No victorious Christian life. Or maybe no Christian life at all. And oftentimes, I think in response to these kind of people, what we often hear or what we often give is something like this. You know, I bet someone has a worse past than you. Does that ever work? For, does that ever encourage you or encourage you much? You know, I bet someone did something worse than you somewhere, right? Or maybe our response in those moments is to demand something like pity or empathy or wanting someone to feel bad for us or to get into the pit of despair with us. Or maybe what we do is we look at the past and we set out for the day to outweigh everything that happened in the past. If I could just do enough good today, it'll, it'll outweigh. How's that working? for you? Does it ever seem like the scale is heavy enough on that side to outweigh? It's quite elusive, like sand running through your hands. But the reality is, is we don't need any of those three things. We don't need someone to tell us there's someone worse off. We don't need pity and empathy. We don't need the scales to outweigh at the end of the day as if that's even possible. Jesus didn't say, get someone's pity and you'll be set free. Jesus didn't say, consider how worse off someone else is and you'll be set free from your past. No, Jesus said, know the truth. Know the truth of the matter. Know the truth of the situation and particularly know the truth about him and you will be set free. Here in this passage, just beneath the surface is the truth that we need to understand, namely the truth of redemption. 
the truth of redemption. The truth of being set free from slavery at a price. That's redemption. What we see here in Joshua, in Joshua 21, is kind of the finale in the story of the redemption of the Levites. The people, the tribe named the Levites. The first thing I want you to see, and and if you're taking notes, write down is this. Everyone's story begins with death. Everyone's story begins with death, in death. Let's recount the story of the Levites. This is where, when I say it's like just beneath the surface, if you don't see, if you don't understand the backstory of what's happening with the Levites coming up to this moment, you'll miss what Joshua and what the Holy Spirit through Joshua is painting for us. See, in Genesis 34, the reason why I had Karen read that for us this morning is this is really the beginning of of the story of the Levites. You see, there was this guy named Jacob who had 12 sons. Those sons would later be the heads of and would become to be known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's what's been happening in Joshua. We've been talking about these 12 tribes. These 12 tribes doing this, some of the tribes doing this, and now the tribes are all getting their inheritance except for the Levites. These are the 12 tribes. Those names, some of you may remember them as Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Gad, Asher, Dan, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin. Well, Joseph also had daughters. If you go back and read Genesis 34, I'd encourage you to this week. Let me tell you the story that results in the the Genesis 49 passage that we read earlier. See, Jacob also had daughters, one of those whose name was Dinah. One day Dinah was out and about in the field, and a man from a neighboring tribe named Shechem seized her and raped her. Well, Jacob, her father, finds out. Of course, he's furious. It's about this time that Hamer, who is Shechem's father, the both of them come together to Jacob and tell Jacob, that, they, that he actually wants to marry Dinah now. We don't know his motives. The Bible doesn't tell us his motives at this point. We just know they want to take the wives of Jacob's daughters and marry them. Not just Dinah, but certainly beginning with Dinah. Well, then the 12 sons of Jacob find out about this, and they're outraged. They're angry, as they should be. Well, what happens is the 12 sons come in from the field and they're talking. They, they say deceitfully to Hamor and Shechem, we will give our sisters to you to be married, but we cannot do it unless your tribe is circumcised. Every male in your tribe will have to be circumcised. Well, for some crazy reason, Hamor and his son Shechem agree. Well, then as the story goes on, on the third day, when all the men were sore, for obvious reasons, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, go to the other tribe 
kill all the males, plunder the city, and take the rest back home. Take the wives, the women, the kids back home. Jacob is furious. For ultimately, the scriptures tell us that they had killed out of anger. Not out of justice, but out of anger. Well, that's chapter 34. Life continues, and then at the end of Jacob's life, as was common in these cultures, they would leave their children with a blessing or a curse. They would announce these and make them explicit. They would speak them. Well, at the end of Jacob's life, it's no different. He pronounces blessings and curses on his sons. You can go read them in chapter 49, beginning with Reuben, his firstborn, and he speaks highly of him. You're strong and dignified. And then he gets to the passage we read earlier, 49, and he says this of Simeon and Levi. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. This is their father on his dying days. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. And he says, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Here's what Jacob is doing. He's handing them curses. Specifically, or to name them specifically, he's saying, let Jacob's, let my counsel, my presence, my wisdom not accompany them. No blessing. And second, they will not have a land of their own. They will have no land. They will be scattered. The tribe will not be together. They will be separated. You see, the death they brought unjustly upon that other tribe is now a death they will experience for generations. Their story begins with death, the death of their future, the death of their inheritance and future generations' inheritance. This is a price that they will pay dearly for, and so will their offspring. That's where the Levites' story begins. The reality is, for you and I, every single person to ever walk this earth, our story and my story begins with death too. Let me remind you of Ephesians chapter 2, or, or tell you for the first time, if you've not read it, Paul says this in verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Our story, your story, my story begins with death, not just some of us, but all of us. And if you don't realize, first of all, as a side note here, if you don't realize that your story begins with death, then you can have no part in the gospel of Jesus. There is no salvation for those who need only a slightly better station in life. There's only salvation for those who realize they were dead. 
following the course and the power of the air. What he's saying is he's following our sinful inclinations, is what Paul is saying. Every human being begins at the very same place, dead in our sins, following the course of this world. Our forefather was not Levi, but Adam, and we have followed in his footsteps. We loved the ways of this world instead of the ways of God. If you're redeemed, if you're a follower of Jesus, you see evidences of this in your life every day where you still want to do that. You still want to follow those things. Listen, even if your past is not riddled with unsavory details, your past is still riddled with self-righteousness and legalism. Saying things with your life like, I can earn my way to God. I can be God. I don't need God. I'm good on my own. I can make it part of the way to God. I just need a helping hand for the last bit. But the reality is, just like the Levites, our story, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, begins with death. We're going to help someone looking back on their past It's helpful and right for us to look back on our past and remember that it began with death. So what's this mean? Some practical application as we look back on our past as we're doing with the Levites. What does this mean? If, we, if our story begins with death, what does this mean when we have this struggle with the past? One, it means that you were worse than you could even imagine at this moment. It means that you and I are more of a failure than we think we were. I, I, listen, I know that's hard to hear. But that sin that keeps haunting you, your life began in death. It was worse. Whatever that sin is that has you enslaved or that season of your life that you keep, you just can't let go of the greater, the reality is, is that there is greater sin that lies beneath it and behind it. Maybe those sins were done before you were redeemed. Maybe there's sins you've done since you've been redeemed, or they were done a couple weeks ago even, or a couple hours. The reality is when you and I consider our past and the guilt we feel because of it, our past is worse than you and I can fathom. I would ask you this question, why are you getting hung up on those particular items? Why not the reality that at some point you were dead, desiring nothing of God? You were dead, I was dead, and we did nothing but follow our evil desires. Even the things that looked morally good to those outside of us were done for our glory out of the deadness of our hearts. I'm not saying, as a caveat here, that you shouldn't reflect, and I shouldn't reflect and discern if real sin happened in the past, or, or that we shouldn't repent of those things. What I'm assuming in this moment is that actual sin happened. And if it did, and you're enslaved to it, 
What I'm saying to you is that it's worse. Your story began with death. And each time we sin, it should be a reminder that our story began with death. Now, not for all, but for some, the story does not end with their death or the living in that death because some choose to follow the Lord. Some choose to follow the Lord. Let's go back to the story of the Levites as we work our way to Joshua 21. From this point in the story with Shechem and Hamor and and their death and the death that the Levites brought on and then the death of their inheritance. 400 years have now passed, roughly. Joseph has been sold into slavery. That's one of their brothers, but, but rises to be a leader in Pharaoh's house, which ultimately saves his family during famine. If you're familiar with the story, Israel, while they're in Egypt, grows like crazy. And here comes Moses and the whole let my people go thing. And they flee Egypt after the Passover through the Red Sea. And now Moses has led the people to Mount Sinai. They're all at the foot of the mountain. Remember this, they can't touch the mountain because it's a, it's a holy place and God's thunder is coming upon this. And Moses walks up the mountain. And, and if you remember the story, what's happening on that mountain is God is giving of himself represented in the Ten Commandments to Moses. But what happens while Moses is gone? What happens while he is meeting with God, the one who just set all of them free, while he's meeting with God, what happens down in the valley with the Israelites? What happens? The people get impatient. They've just been set free. They get impatient. Their evil desires are growing, and so they ask Aaron to help them resurrect a golden calf so they can worship it. Now, now make special note here. If God's law, as we talked about last week, is intimately tied to his character, is personally, is God personally giving and revealing of himself to his people, he's doing that right now with Moses on behalf of the people. And what are the people choosing to do in the midst of God being incredibly gracious to his people? They say, let's get together all the gold so we can melt it together and build a calf so that we can worship it instead of the God who has cared for us, having just delivered us, and now revealing himself to us up on the mountain with our leader Moses. In their impatience and pride, they turn to worship something else. They're grumbling, complaining, discontentment, all while God is being gracious to them. The reality is it just just didn't look the way they wanted it to. It wasn't in the time they wanted it to. It wasn't quite the right color or the tone of voice that they wanted it in. But God was surely speaking to his people for their good. They chose a golden calf instead. Now listen to what happens. Moses has come down from the mountain. He sees what's going on. He talks with Aaron. Exodus 32, verse 19 through 20. And as soon as he came near the camp, Moses that is, and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. 
and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Do you notice what he does? Right away, he makes the people drink the powder of their idol. When I first read that, I thought, man, that's, that's baller. That's intense. You know, in our day, when a preacher or someone says anything hard, whether it's from the pulpit or counseling or discipleship, we hear things like, oh, that's abusive. That was unkind. You weren't patient enough. I thought about writing a proposal for the elders at our next elder meeting that in our next church discipline case, that whatever that person is worshiping, we burn it into powder and have them drink it. What do you think? Some of you laugh. Some of you are like, no, not so funny. Then look what what happens next in the story. Look what happens. Verse 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And look what happens next. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, the sons of Levi that is, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, And go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Wow. Well, first of all, If you think that was harsh to order these executions, then you woefully have very little regard for the glory of God and utter blasphemy it is when we worship anything else but God. That's the picture. Understand that while God was giving of himself through the Ten Commandments, the people were saying someone else is worthy of worship than God. What else could that deserve other than death? If that seemed harsh, then you have very little regard for the glory of God. But that's not the main point here. You remember the Levites? The one whose ancestors murdered Shechem's tribe unlawfully, unjustly. They are the only ones, and it says all of them come to Moses. All of them say, we're on the side of the Lord's. And they're commanded then to go take the lives of brothers, companions, and so on. What's this mean? What's happening in Exodus 32? They're turning to God. This is the picture. They're turning to God requires the forsaking of that which is dearest to them. The forsaking of their family and friends. 
They're to forsake everything to follow God. It's, a, it's, it's like a picture of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, go get rid of all your riches and give it to the poor. He's not telling him that your redemption will happen if you give up your money and that rich people can't be saved. What Jesus is saying is that your money is your God. If you don't give that up, you can't follow me. That's what repentance looks like for you, to stop worshiping that idol and come follow me. The Levites, he said, if you're going to follow God, this is what you need to go do. Forsake it all. It also sounds familiar to Jesus in Luke chapter 14, verse 25 through 26. Now, great crowds accompanied him. This is amazing here, right? Jesus has got a big crowd of people. Like, this is church growth happening, like 101, right? It's like, boom, all these people following Jesus. And what does he say? How does he grow the church, quote-unquote? He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. See, that thing that is most dearest to you, or that thing that is dearest to you, you can't have two gods. You will love the one and hate the other. Jesus says, who's on the Lord's side? If you are, you'll forsake everything to follow me. So now, see the picture. See the picture here. The Levites have this curse upon them, right? We're back to, to Mount Sinai here, and, and right after the golden calf is burned, and they, they have to drink the Kool-Aid here, right? The Levites are sitting there, and they have this curse upon them. No inheritance, and they will be scattered. Their past is riddled in sin, riddled with sin, death all around them. They are chained to the slavery of the past, and yet in this moment, in this moment with Moses, you have God, Moses, and the law on one side, and a golden calf representing death and sinful desires on the other side, and the Levites say, all together, we're on the Lord's side. They choose to follow the Lord. We want to be the people that serve God, even if it means we are put at odds with everyone and everything else, even family. Listen, Levi and his sons have been defined by their past. That is something that, let me remind you, that they can do nothing about. But that's what some of us keep doing. We're enchained to the past because we keep thinking we can do something about it. Listen, you can't go back and fix it, even if it was 10 minutes ago. You can't go back and change it. You can't go back and live it the right way. And then on top of that, don't forget your story began in death, and you can't change that either. But what Levi can do, and his, and his offspring can do, is choose to follow the Lord this day. They're at the, at the foot of the mountain, and they can't do anything about what Simi, their uh, forefathers Simeon and Levi did, but they can do something in this moment. They can choose to follow the Lord this day. They can do something about this day and the next day and the next day, and so can you. 
And so can I. You can choose to follow the Lord this day. Some of you struggle with even the idea of, am I even a Christian? Well, my past looks this way, and I don't feel this way based on my past, and so on and so forth. Listen, you can assess your past. Hear me. I I want to speak words of freedom to you. You can assess your past all you want, but at the end of the day, you can't change it. But what you can do is you can choose to follow Jesus today. Today. You can choose to follow him today. See, everyone's story begins with death, but some choose life. Life and following the Lord. Later in Luke 14, Jesus will go on to say, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So the Levites here in, in Exodus have to give up, forsake, and say, we're with the Lord, we're with Him. So let me ask you the question, what is dearest to you that you don't want to forsake in order to follow Jesus? What is dearest to you? I'll give you a list of potentials. Maybe it's your self-righteousness. Maybe you believe you can earn your way to the Father by doing this or doing that. Maybe you believe in via self-righteousness that you can overcome your past, that, that you can somehow outweigh the scale, that elusive scale you keep trying to put more things on so that you can feel better about your past, so to overwhelm. I'll move on to the next item. Maybe it is your sinful past. Maybe maybe you can't get past in order to follow God because you don't believe God will deal with your past appropriately and perfectly. Or maybe it's your commitment to worldly ideologies, greed, being true to myself. Maybe what you can't forsake is your family. You worship what they say more than what the Lord says. could even be your spouse or your children or your parents. Maybe it's your traditions you can't forsake, or maybe it's your comfort. You want that more. It's maybe it's sports. Maybe it's your feeling of being in control. I'm just giving you examples of modern golden calves that you've melted things together in order to throw up on the mantle and worship. Maybe it's your money or your time. Maybe it's your belief that God can't do anything with such a broken person. Maybe it's your desire to be liked by the world around you. Maybe it's your desire to keep peace with your spouse. Maybe it's your emotions that you worship. What is it for you that is stopping you from saying, I'm choosing the Lord's side today. You see, some choose to follow the Lord, but part of the point here is that it's costly. It's costly. That's part of Jesus' point in Luke 14. 
not costly in the sense that we are earning our way to salvation, but costly in a worldly sense in that we, we're having to give up the world, what seems so delightful to us, only to settle for something immeasurably better. But just look, look what happens to the Levites, right? Back to the story of the Levites. Look what happened to them. If you did not catch this, let me reread it for you in Exodus 32. So they have said, we're on the Lord's side. Look at verse 29. And Moses said, today, today, you have been ordained for the service of the Lord. Each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Here's what he's saying. Today, something has changed for you. Don't miss this. Today, your past remains the same, but your future has changed. This day, Here's this point. Their lives riddled with the death of the past. In this one set of events, though, they choose to follow the Lord. My friend Mitch Evans said this. This, so, this moment so, and their actions so epitomizes what, he mean, what it means to be godly that their entire life in this moment is changed. It's changed for them, it's changed for their kids, and their kids' as kids, and their kids' as kids' as kids, and so on. Their life is changed, so much so that they now will be the people, if you read the rest of uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy after Exodus here, so much so that they will be the people who now go around and teach all the other people how to follow God. That's how much their life has changed in that moment. You see, the thing that redeemed their situation, that turned it all around, was not them making up for the sins of the past. They couldn't do that. It was the forsaking of this that they loved most for trusting in God. I mean, listen, remember the picture here. Moses is bringing down the law, God's grace to his people, a revelation of his character. He's just rescued them from Egypt. And the Levites say, he's more worthy of worship than anything else. You see, this decision in this moment redefined the legacy of their descendants. So are you trying to make up for your past, trying to feel redeemed? Listen, it's no use. Lay down your self-righteous tools and turn to God. Follow Him today. As my friend Mitch, I think, asked a couple good questions here. What of the past defines you? Like, that is what I, I, I just can't get over. Like, what is it? You're like, this defines me now. Was it anxiousness? Depression? Anger? Poor money management? Poor time management? Broken relationships? 
lust, legalism, chucking the law. So there is nothing that you and I can do to go back and fix the past. I think oftentimes we do those. We spin our wheels trying to just simply do something better today than we did yesterday, thinking if I can just live in, in a way that balances out the past, that I can get rid of all the guilt I feel, I can get rid of the pain, but it never works. It's never enough. And so we live like a slave. Your only good option is to say, Lord, I want to be on your side today. I want to follow you today. That's what the Levites do. In this moment, their life has changed. And their descendants' life has changed. Here's what God does God uses it all for His glory and our good. Let me help you connect this past of the Levites here into Joshua 21. So in Joshua 21, they're all in the land now, right? They've conquered the land. The Canaanites have been conquered. And the other 11 tribes have been given their, their inheritance, Here's your piece of the property where you get to go live and follow the Lord. And the Levites come and say to the leaders in Joshua in chapter 21, look at verse 2 and 3. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in. Listen, that's not to inherit, but just cities to live in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. The rest of 21 is this uh, tribe saying they're going to have this city and they're going to get to live here and they're going to have this pasture land and so on and so forth. It's this beautiful picture. They say to the leaders, hey, please give us what is due to us. Now let's make note of something here. Let's make note of something. God does not normally take away the consequences of past sin. Listen, he, he doesn't, if you look at this picture, the Levites, they still do not get an inheritance. They will still be scattered among all the tribes of Israel. They're still going to be without land. Listen, look, look, looking at your past... Realize God may not take away all of the consequences. He may not take away all the consequences. But look what God does. Do not miss this. He uses the very consequences of their sin for His glory and for our good. First, for His glory. Remember what Levi's father said? Back in 49, he says, Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory. Be not joined to their company. So when, when he's saying of, of Simeon and Levi, I don't want to have anything to do with them. I don't want my soul to have anything to do with them. But now, again, go, go just 
uh, you know, search your Bible for the Levites and read all the passages and see what God gives them to do. Because it now, after that point in the Mount Sinai where they say, we're going to follow the Lord, what happens is they become God's servants representing him to all of the nation and using the Levites to teach and remind all of the people all of God's ways. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 8, it says, At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to serve him and to bless in his name until this day. The very people. This part changes. This part of their consequence changes. God now will dwell with them. God's Uh, soul, if you will, will be a part of their counsel. His glory will be joined with them. They will be a part and be a company to His glory. They were going to be His priests. But the part of their consequence of being scattered with no land to inherit does not change. But look what happens. Let me ask this question. How are they going to teach all of the tribes of Israel. I mean, listen, they, they didn't have Zoom, right? What needed to happen for them to walk with the rest of the nation, to remind them of God's ways and lead God's people to worship Him? They needed to be scattered among God's people. You see, God takes their curse of being scattered and uses it to proclaim His glory through them among the entire nation of Israel. Listen to what John Calvin said. He said, as a kind of guardians in every district to retain the people in the pure worship of God, it is true, they were everywhere strangers but still was with the very high dignity of acting as stewards for God and preventing their countrymen from revolting from piety. This is the reason for stating so carefully how many cities they obtained from each tribe. They were everywhere to keep watch and preserve the purity of sacred rites unimpaired. That's why this careful recounting, the Levites are going to be here, and they're going to be here, and they're going to be here, and they're going to be here, they're going to be here. So we see God's use of the consequence of their sin being scattered. He uses that for His glory. Listen, you and I can't do anything about our past, but God can use our past for His glory. You and I are not powerful enough to go back and do anything with it, but He is. He can use your sinful, broken past for His glory. Namely, to spread His glory and to serve His people. Let me ask you this question. Do you believe that God is powerful enough to use your broken past for His Do you believe that? Yeah. Do you struggle to believe that? I do. Lastly, for our good. For our good. He uses even the consequences of our sin for our good. The consequences he may not remove from your life. 
He can use it for your good. Again, remember the consequence of having no land inheritance. But instead, what, Deuteronomy 18, in verse 1 and 2, it says, The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. Right? This is familiar. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance. This is talking about the land. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. So they're to get no land, but the Lord is their inheritance. Well, if you read on past Joshua into Israel's history, you will see, and hate to ruin, you know, uh, spoiler alert here, so close off your ears if you need to, they will eventually lose all the land. All that we've spent 21 chapters enjoying and watching, they will eventually sin and in disobedience lose all of the land that they fought so hard for. They'll lose it all. But what about the Levites? The Levites will have no land to lose. They will have no land to lose. They have only the Lord and they can never lose Him. You know, all those things that you don't want to forsake in order to follow the Lord, eventually you and I are going to lose them all anyways. And if you don't have the Lord in that moment, you will have nothing. But if you have the Lord, you will have everything. You know that past you walk in chains to, the guilt you carry upon your back? Just maybe your past is teaching you that apart from Christ, there really is nothing else to be had. You and I can't fix it. There's no freedom there. There's no victory. There's no joy. There's no holiness. There's no glory. Apart from Christ, there is no inheritance. But in Christ, but in Christ, your past, my past, just as the Levites' past, can be forgiven By faith in the Christ who died the death for those sins. And your future and my future can be changed today. Today, right now. Listen to what Paul the Apostle said. Remember, if you remember the story of, of Paul. There's lots of death in Paul's life. If you remember, well, he too, first of all, would have been born in death just like you and I. But then he, like the Levites, has lots of physical killing in his life where he was murdering Christians. Listen to Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. Paul says this, Not that I have already obtained this or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal 
for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. When Paul says in that very quick, quick phrase there, because Christ Jesus has made me his own, what's Paul mean there? Paul believes that Jesus has bought him from slavery at a cost out of his own life. And now because of that, Paul says, I'm no longer a slave to what lies behind me. It's all been paid for. Someone died for that. Jesus died for that. He bought me and he's made me his own. He says, I'm no longer a slave to that. Listen, that's the only answer to your past and to my past. It's for Jesus to make you his own. For Jesus to make me his own. And then in that, you and I can press on to the future. Because in that moment, our inheritance changes. Every bit of it. Every bit of it. The land we get to inherit is the presence of God for all of eternity. The consequences of our sin that God lets, uh, that He does not take away, He gets to use those for His glory through you. He gets to take those, the sins and the consequences of those sins and turns them into marks of grace. To scars that show His grace and His mercy to other people. In a moment, this is redemption. This is freedom from the past. This is a victorious Christian life. Let's pray. Dear Father, we all have different details as to the past moments of our lives. But what is true for every single one of us is that we were born in death. What is also true is that at some point, if that is to change, by your grace and your power, we must choose to follow you today. And Father, again, by your grace and your mercy, you will use all of that that we were once enslaved to to display your glory. And you will use it all for our good. For when this world passes away, we will stand there having lost nothing if we forsook it all to follow you. Father, for we, we cannot earn our way out of the plight of our past or even our present. But we can, by your power and your work, turn to you in faith today that Jesus paid for my past, even if it was two minutes ago, he paid for it and has set me free. And changed the life 
of my days ahead. I pray that you would give those with weak faith or no faith, that you would give them faith and stronger faith today. Father, for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen.